Welcome to the sixth session in an eight-part introduction to Indigenous Relations in BC. I continue to respect your valuable time at the cost of accuracy and completeness. In this session, I'm going to give you some context about treaties and other agreements between Indigenous and other governments. In an earlier session, I mentioned that BC, unlike the rest of Canada, had very few First Nations treaties in place, just Treaty 8 in Northeast BC, and the 14 Douglas Treaties on Vancouver Island. In the 1990s, there was frustration with the federal claims process and increasing interest in both reconciliation and certainty. In response, British Columbia, Canada, and the First Nations Summit established the BC Treaty process. Part of that was the establishment of the BC Treaty Commission, which is known as the Keeper of the Process. The BC Treaty process is voluntary and open to all First Nations. Depending on who's counting, and that drives me crazy, there are between 198 and 203 Indian Act bans in BC. 65 of those participate in the BC Treaty process in some way. However, only three treaties have been implemented under that process, involving a total of seven bans. I encourage you to visit the BC Treaty Commission website because it gives a detailed breakdown of which bans are in the process, in which stage of negotiations, and a much better overall picture of what the process is about. I should note that the Nishka Treaty in Northwest BC was negotiated separately as the BC Treaty process was put together. Modern treaties are constitutionally protected government-to-government agreements. In theory, they don't extinguish Aboriginal rights, instead they replace them with specific treaty rights, and I will acknowledge that's a controversial statement. In addition, some land within the First Nations traditional territory is transferred to their ownership, along with a cash settlement. BC provides the land, the federal government provides the cash. But in my opinion, the most important thing is that treaties move First Nations out from the Indian Act into various forms of self-government. Now, some First Nations have negotiated their way to self-government outside the treaty process, like the Seashelled Indian Band, which now owns and manages its former reserve lands and administers its own resources. And I will also acknowledge that the BC treaty process has been criticized as expensive and lengthy. And that's all arguably true, but at this point, treaties are unique and important because of their constitutional protection, which means that they can't be varied easily or unilaterally by federal or provincial governments. One side note, there was at least one unintended consequence of the process. It required participating First Nations communities to file their statements of claim. That meant, in part, drawing their traditional territory boundaries on maps, and I've heard First Nations communities blame friction between each other on that aspect of the treaty process. So, as an example, several communities might use the same area for hunting on a cooperative basis, but all would feel obliged to claim it as theirs in the treaty process, rather than risk losing access. When Front Counter BC identifies which First Nations communities may have Aboriginal interests in a specific area, one of the things they rely on are those statements of claim. So, what does that mean for non-First Nations people in an area covered by treaty? 
they'll have a greater level of certainty about the security of investments in the land. They'll be able to refer to the treaty final agreement document for defined treaty rights as opposed to undefined Aboriginal rights. They'll see the areas outside of Indian reserves that have been transferred to the control of the First Nations, and it will also give them insight into the structure and function of Indigenous self-government if they want to live or do business on those treaty lands. But there are other types of agreements to be aware of, recognizing that not all First Nations communities are in the treaty process, and for those in the treaty process, it may take years to reach implementation the provincial government can negotiate a number of so-called interim agreements. They can include revenue-sharing agreements that are negotiated for specific proposed resource projects. So, for example, the province may agree to share a percentage of its mineral tax revenue from a new mine. Or they can be agreements to streamline consultation processes. Or they can be broader in nature and, and speak to all manner of issues. These are sometimes called reconciliation agreements and can include ministries and topics outside the natural resource sector. So I I think it's time for some background on the 2005 new relationship document that I've mentioned before. It was drafted by the provincial government and members of the First Nations Leadership Council. It began with the words, we are all here to stay. And it focused on closing the socioeconomic gaps between Aboriginal people and other British Columbians. And it was based on three things respect, recognition and accommodation of Aboriginal title and rights, respect for each other's laws and responsibilities, and the reconciliation of Aboriginal and Crown titles and jurisdictions. Now, the new relationship document wasn't a legally binding agreement, but it was an important mutual expression of interest in government-to-government partnership. And with that, I'll move on to a session about understanding politics and power when working with First Nations. Sounds potentially controversial, doesn't it? I'm Peter Walters. Thank you for listening.